Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Would you pray with me? Lord, oh, what beautiful scriptures. How sweet it is to dwell together in unity. Lord, would we taste some of the honey? that the psalmist talked about, would it be sweet in our mouth as we contemplate your holy word through Christ Jesus. Amen. We're currently in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're uh, two in, in a three-month three month series, that is. Um, and it's basically a manifesto for the kingdom of God about how Jesus' people Disciples of Jesus are to be distinct from the rest of the world for the sake of the world. Now, it's interesting with that distinction because Jesus was a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, and he was raised in the heart of the Jewish faith. And yet, he didn't speak um, or act like a normal rabbi. And in fact, uh, you get this all the time through the stories in the Gospels where people are kind of put off by how he's different than normal rabbis that they're used to. You don't sound like one. You don't smell like one. How, you're so distinct. And so it's, it makes sense that for these people who are astonished at the authority, how do you relate to the historic Jewish faith? More specifically, what comes up a lot of the times is, Jesus, how do you relate to the law of Moses? Now, just for some definitions, just because... Uh, it's easy to think all kinds of different things when you hear stuff like the law. Jesus, in this passage, in the one that Marissa read, is going to talk about the law and the prophets. And that is basically Jewish shorthand for the Old Testament, so for the Hebrew Scriptures. But sometimes you'll hear Jesus or other people in the Bible just refer to the law. And when somebody says that, that can either mean the books of Moses, the Torah, um, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the very beginning. Or it can actually refer to the specific commands that were given to the people of Israel in the books of Moses. So like the actual do's and don'ts. Um, some of you might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, which is the cornerstone of the law, uh, but there are many more than that. To be exact, there are 365 don'ts and 248 do's. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to go through each one of them and unpack them a little bit <laughs> and then come back to what Jesus says and then do a few things about that. Just kidding. <laughs> what people are interested in is that, the do's and don'ts. Jesus is so unique and revolutionary, and they want to know, what do you think about the Holy Scriptures? What do you think about all those commandments? Do you keep those? His disciples are like, do we keep those? Do you agree with them? Are you changing them? Are you doing something new? Now, that might sound like an internal, antiquated Jewish debate, um, and some of you might be like, that sounds irrelevant to me, even though some of us are Jewish, even though most of us are Gentile, but I assure you, it is not an irrelevant question. If you're new to Christianity, but I'm, uh, and you're here and you're looking into Jesus, you might be thinking things like, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure about the Bible, and I'm even less sure about the Old Testament, or... I like Jesus, but does that mean I have to keep commandments? And if you're a Christian, regardless of how long you've been in the church or walking with Jesus, you might be asking, as I always do, with more complexity, 
how does Jesus teach us to relate to the scriptures and the commandments in the scriptures? You guys ever asked any of those questions? Yeah? These are really, really important questions, and lucky for us, Jesus answers them in this passage. So we're going to begin by looking at how Jesus answers this kind of unspoken rhetorical question. Um, It's about the relationship to the commandments, his relationship to the commandments, and then what he expects from his disciples. And then we're going to finish by asking two questions about his answer in order to unpack it. Sound good? So how does Jesus answer that? And then what in the world does it mean? That's where we're going. Turn with me in your your bulletin. uh, Flip with me to Matthew 5. If you have a Bible, this is Matthew chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 17. Jesus is going to begin by talking about himself. Verse 17, do not think, don't think this, that I have come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, and when Jesus says that, he means, listen, I'm about to say something important. Don't miss what I'm about to say. That's what, for truly I say to you. And by the way, truly means amen. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this is pretty clear. He's saying, no, 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 no. Don't think I'm doing away with any of this. This is what I'm all about. And then in verse 18, he's basically saying, as long as the heaven, heavens and earth are around, as long as the sun rises, uh, the earth, uh, the law is still going to be around. It is not going anywhere. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see someone who lived, taught, and loved the law and the commandments of God. So Jesus lived it. He says, I've come to fulfill it. And yeah, one of the ways he does that is by fulfilling things that the prophets predicted would happen. Like when Matthew's like, oh my gosh. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said, that's what the Messiah was going to do. That's a fulfillment. But another way he fulfills it is by doing it, by obeying the commandments. His life was conformed to them. And he also fulfills the law by teaching it. The word fulfill means what it sounds like. It it kind of has this connotation of filling something up or filling it out, like rounding it out, unpacking it. And a lot of people in Jesus' day had different ideas about the law and the scriptures and what they mean or didn't mean. They had different interpretations about the law. They lived it out differently. And Jesus makes it clear, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that he has come to fill out the teachings of Moses, of the Hebrew scriptures, by giving us their true and most authoritative and most beautiful interpretation. So this is really important. Jesus did not come to teach something different than the Old Testament. Can I get an amen? Amen. Rather, he came to teach us what it's all about. In fact, he makes it really clear he's the interpretive key to the meaning of the Old Testament. Um, Think of like a map in like a a movie or a story where you got to have the key to make the map work or you can see it or whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? Jesus is the key to the interpretation and the living out of the Old Testament. But then we must add that he also loved the commandments of God. He loved them. Um, One of the great themes in the Old Testament is something that I like to call law love, which is not a thing. I just made it up, but I'm going to trademark it. Law love. This is this idea that from the Garden of Eden, where there were commandments, even before the fall, to Sinai, to the prophets, the rules and the commandments of God are not oppressive. They're not merely moralistic but they give life 
They bring joy and beauty. They lead the people of God into harmony with him, with creation, and with others. And law love is this gushing, overflowing realization of how beautiful and how sweet to the taste and how life-giving are the commandments of God. Turn with me to your Deuteronomy reading real quick. We're just going to walk back through these readings because they're so tasty. This is a really important part of Deuteronomy. Moses is kind of finishing those first five books of Moses, and he's kind of giving his, like, drop the mic speech before he's about to die. And he's talking about the law. He's talking about the commandments of God here. Look at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, death and evil being if you refuse and reject the commandments of God. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in what commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall what live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you. Now look to the right of your bulletin to Psalm 119. Um, this is a huge psalm, and the whole thing sounds like this. Uh, but this is just an example of the ways that the psalmist is gushing about the commandments of God. Look at verse 97. Lord, what love I have for your law. All the day long, I meditate on it. Do you remember what Psalm 1 says, how the Psalter starts? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, whose daily meditation, day and night, is the law. He's saying, I love it. Verse 103. Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste. Indeed, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweeter than donuts from Green Mill Bakery or whatever's outside. So verse 104, through your commandments, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate all the evil ways. Jesus embodies perfectly in his life law love. We get one picture of Jesus in between his infancy and age 30 when he starts his ministry. And guess what he's doing? We get one picture of his like tweens, teens, adolescents, 20s. And the one thing we get a picture of him doing when he's 12 is talking about the Torah in the house of God. There are at least two different times in Jesus' life that he talks about the commandments of God being food. He literally is eating it. It's, it's what he lives off of. And Satan cannot tempt him in the desert because what's he eating? The word of God, the commandments. Pilate and Herod cannot sway him or bribe him or get him to do something against his conscience. Why? Because his life is conformed to the laws of God which have taught him justly to only serve one master. So he's unswayed. I think that's why there's a little bit of an intensity in his words when he says this. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. You kind of hear a, like, no, 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 no. This is what I'm all about. This is my life. There's an old heresy uh, that started super early in the church in like the first and second centuries, and it crops up every century, and it's alive and well today, that the Old Testament is really nasty, but the New Testament is really awesome. It's like Jesus is good, Moses is bad. Um, law versus gospel, and I totally get that, but repeatedly the church has come back and said, no, that's, that's false. More so than anywhere because of this passage of what Jesus is talking about. 
So that's how he defined his relationship, and that's pretty clear. But what about us? Go back to your gospel reading with me, Matthew 5. This is verse 19. Therefore, coming off of what he just said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty simple. Jesus basically points at us and says, you too. This is what, I, this is what I'm calling you to. Live it. Teach it. Love it. So God's word, according to Jesus and his commandments, are to frame our entire life, just like Jesus. He warns us firmly that we aren't to go easy on even the least of the commandments. And when Jesus says these commandments, it's clear he's talking about the Old Testament. And also, we can say in the context of Matthew and what he's about to say, he's also talking about his commandments that he's giving to the disciples. So we are to cling to and embody a love for the commandments of God in a way that causes us to flourish and is beautiful for the world. Now, when I was studying this this week, and when I hear things like that, or maybe for you, when I say things like that, alarm bells can go off. Here's ones that went off for me, which may be going off for you. Wait, isn't that legalistic? Or wait, the Old Testament's super weird. <laughs> I've actually tried to love it, and it's not been easy. Or, you know, wait, I thought it was all about love and grace, and Christianity's a relationship, not a religion, and like, we're all done with this, and all that kind of a thing. You guys thinking any of that? I certainly did. And when we hear Jesus give his disciples such a high calling with such clear language, he is calling you to the utmost righteousness in terms of keeping the commandments that he's called us to do. When we hear that, I think we immediately want to be let off the hook. I had this like image of him speaking to people my age, to millennials, and somebody in the crowd just being like, I can't even, like, I'm not, like, no. I also laughed if this was like, like, who wants to be a millionaire or something? Like, it's in these moments we immediately want a, a grace lifeline. Like, we want to call Paul and be like, Paul, help me get out of this. Like, <laughs> Jesus is putting you in a corner. Like, you have to do the commandments. And we're like, but Paul. <laughs> and eventually we will call Paul. So don't worry, we're going there. But notice, does Jesus nuance or caveat what he says at all? Does he? No, he does not. This is his sermon, not mine. And in his, he just says it with a straight face. Jesus expects his disciples to keep the commandments. And actually, this is one of the most important themes in the Gospel of Matthew. Someone comes up to him in chapter 19 and says, how do I obtain eternal life? If you want to, and that's kind of like the question we're all asking. And guess what his answer is? If you want to enter life, what do you think he says? Keep the commandments. Guess how the gospel ends? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know that. Do you know what he goes on to say? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And guess what Jesus does for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? He interprets and gives commands. Commands about all of life. Commands that affect your body, your decisions, your work, your enemies, your friends, your family, 
everything, and commands that, if kept, flow like a river. They blossom into life. But perhaps the most astonishing thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew about keeping the commandments and this idea and this theme is the very next verse. Look at verse 20 with me. It's interesting, if you already are listening to him and you're like, whoa, this is going to be really hard if I can't relax any of these commandments, he then ups the ante. It's like he doesn't let off the gas. He just drives it even deeper. Verse 20, for I tell you, just in case you didn't hear me the first time, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Righteousness can be defined as the conformity of one's life to the law. How much does your life look like the law? That's righteousness. And the Pharisees and scribes, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're not, they're just like the most epic law keepers around. They knew the law the best. They kept the law more than anybody. So Jesus is saying, not only do you have to keep the commandments, but you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you do it in a greater way, unless it exceeds that of those guys. And they're like, what? Those guys are insane. It's literally like their job to keep the law. That's an, that's an outlandish, crushing statement, unless you think you're like a perfect spiritual superhero, which at least I do not. What does he mean? Um, Jesus is going to illustrate exactly what he means through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And the more we study this month by month, the more clearer what he is saying will make sense to us, I think. But we have to take at least a crack at it this morning because I can't just say, all right, now go in peace and, you know, have your righteousness exceed the Pharisees. So for the rest of our time, just two simple questions I want to ask about what Jesus is saying. First, how is it different? When Jesus says it's got to be different than the scribes and Pharisees, what is he talking about? And then second, how in the world is that possible? Okay? How is it different? How is it possible? You guys tracking? First, how is it different? For one, we learn from the following six examples, and if you have a Bible, you can see he's going to have all these different examples he gives in chapter 5, that he's calling his disciples' obedience to be heart deep, not skin deep. And by that, I mean that Jesus intends for his followers to be righteous from the inside out. The Pharisees check the commandment box, but it's not flowing from their heart. Jesus wants our relationship to the commandments to feel like a fountain that flow from our heart out of our eyes and our mouth and into our hands, not like a standardized test that feels ominous when you're in middle school. So two different experiences. Another difference that we learn from his examples is that he wants his disciples' obedience to be characterized by maximum application, not minimum. And by that I mean not just doing the bare minimum you need to do to get by or to save face in front of other people, but rather from that fountain flowing an inside-out righteousness inside of you to be seeking to apply the laws of God in as many ways as possible, in as many places as possible. And to try to explain this, let me give a very self-deprecating example from my own life. Um, I care about the earth. I promise I do. I believe wholeheartedly in the biblical teaching on earth care, but I must confess that my recycling habits are skin-deep and they're minimalistic. Don't judge me. You can judge me. That's the point of this. Um, Madison is a very environmentally conscious place, as you all know, and so I do all the things that I need to do to not get despised by my neighbors who are more conscious than I am, even though I feel bad when they have the tiny little trash cans and I have the big ones, you know? It's like, it's like shame every Sunday night when we all pull our things out. 
But when no one's looking, I'm not always consistent. I don't, I'm not always thinking about it or caring. I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. Marissa, on the other hand, is different. She, from this heart conviction, is always looking to apply in as many ways as possible how consistent she is, what she thinks about the world and biblical stewardship of the earth. So when no one's looking for Marissa, she's like really troubled by single-use plastics and paper towels. Uh, She's very thoughtful about like what kind of cleaning stuff we use. And when nobody's looking, I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just do whatever. And she's like, it does matter. And then I feel even more ashamed. And that's how that pans out in our marriage. Out of her heart, do you see she's looking to apply those beliefs as widely as possible. She cares about it. In my skin-deep environmentalism, I would say, I'm looking to just get by and like be a part of the status quo in our city. You feel me? That is a huge difference in the way that those two things function in relationship to a, a good truth that God gives us. Jesus goes on to give examples like murder and adultery and truth-telling and show how it's not just enough to say, well, I've never actually done that or I've checked that box in this way, but in your heart be full of anger or lust. And that's what we're going to be thinking about for the next three weeks. And that way, it's actually not really a compliment. It must exceed their righteousness. It's got to be different from what they're doing. And in that way, it's actually not really a compliment to the Pharisees and scribes. And I hope you will agree that's a beautiful vision. In that situation, wouldn't you rather be like Marissa than me? Um, Before we go on to how is it possible, I have to say uh, that because of Jesus, we are no longer bound to keep certain laws in the Old Testament that are ceremonial with sacrifices and food and clothes um, and judicial or political, like things that apply to Israel. Um, That is a huge thing. And like, no, you can eat selfish. And if you like bacon, you can enjoy bacon and all those things. But Jesus doesn't really go there. And so I'm just not going to really go there and spend a ton of time there either. If that's okay with you guys, you can come talk to me about it afterwards. But that's a massive difference as well. And we'll talk about that later. It's because Jesus fulfilled the law. But now let's switch over. How is it possible? How is it possible? The Pharisees didn't set out thinking, guys, Let's think about this. We could, from a deep place in our heart, love the law and obey it, or we could just keep it skin deep and just do what we need to do to get by. You know, they didn't decide that. They wanted to keep the law, but in their sin, they misunderstood it and manipulated it. And guess who else has a propensity to do that with things that we're told to do? Us, right? We are also sinners. Peter says in Acts, Peter was a Jew, that the law was a burden the Jewish people had never been able to bear. Jesus says his yoke is easy in the Gospel of Matthew, and his burden is light. How is this yoke from Jesus not crushing? How is this not even a greater burden that Jesus is putting on us than what the the Mosaic Law was before Christ? The answer in the Gospel, I think, is right there in verse 17 in the beginning of your Gospel reading. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He completed it. He satisfied it. And therefore, we can do what Jesus calls us to here because we now relate to the commandments of God through the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and in response to the love of the Father. So I'm going to work through those. We relate to it through the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and in response to the love of the Father. Now, let's, let's use our grace lifeline and let's call Paul and, and get some help. Flip to your Romans reading in Romans 8. I know I'm dragging you across a lot of passages today, but this is important. 
You guys there? Number one, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? In who? In us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So first we come to the commandments of God. This is all possible because of the work of Christ. Did you hear Paul? He did what we could not in a way that no one ever has been. And he paid the penalty by his death for our falling short of it. Those are the two ways you fulfill it. You either complete it or you pay the penalty for not. Jesus did both. To wrap our minds around this, let's think about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is where your mind was going. <laughs> um, if you've seen the movie, Indiana Jones, at the end, he's like on this quest under this mountain to go get the Holy Grail, but he's got to go through this long, like, I don't know, cave in the ground, and there's all these booby traps that are meant to kill you and th stuff that's meant to tempt you and stop you from going and all this stuff so that people can't get there. In fact, everyone who had gone before Indiana Jones died in the process. Everybody failed. And that's the law. Nobody ever nailed it. Nobody ever fulfilled it before. But then Indiana Jones completes it. So he goes along, and as he's going, he disengages the booby traps. He kind of leaves clues so that people can easily go through it, and then he completes it. And once he's gone through it, the people behind him can just walk on it like a normal path, freely. Um, if you're young and you've never seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, think of video games and how you have to beat levels in order to unlock them that you can play whenever you want to later. My younger people in the audience, you feel me? Yeah? Same truth. This side of the cross and resurrection, that is how we relate to the commandments of God. The commandments are still there. Jesus said they're not going anywhere, and they're still good, and they still give life, but the condemnation and the fear of failure are not. There is therefore now no condemnation. And when we turn to Jesus in faith, we receive the forgiveness that he's freely offering. And in this really mysterious way, we get to participate in his righteousness. It's just like the people were able to walk on that path after Indiana Jones completed it. We share in his victory. But it gets better because it's not just some legal thing we are also empowered by the Spirit. Do you notice um, when Nicholas was reading that Romans reading, how much the Spirit is at work there? That's what he says at the beginning of the, the part that we read. The, righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's point is that Jesus gives us his Spirit so that we can do the things we are asked. And this was always the promise of the prophets that he would pour out, the prophets always in the Old Testament say that God would give us a new heart one day, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and that he would write his law, not on stone like he did for Moses, but in us, inside of us. So the law and the commandments of God could never empower us. They could never actually help you do it. They could show you the way. They could show you how much you're choking when you're not going on the way, but they could never empower you. But the spirit gives life. Um, 
Cunninghams, my family, by nature are not very tall or super athletic people. I'm actually the tallest Cunningham, but I think that I have the worst vertical of everyone in my family, so it evens out. And one of my dad's classic phrases is, you just can't teach some people to do some things. He's like, you're never going to teach me to, do a, to, to dunk a basketball. It's never going to happen. You can try, but at the end of the day, I am not going to dunk a basketball. That was our state and our sin apart from the Holy Spirit. But notice how Paul finishes the reading in Romans. If you're still looking at the Romans reading, look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's like, listen, if the same power that literally raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then how much more can he work in you and bear fruit to follow God? Hallelujah. This means that we actually believe what Jesus says is possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really important. We believe this. Amen? We don't think that we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount and these are unattainable ideals. We believe what Jesus says. We believe that these beautiful things that he teaches are really to characterize the Christian community. But we don't believe that because we're awesome. We believe that because we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Amen? Finally, we relate to the commandments of God in response to the love of the Father. This is so important. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but it's so huge. In verse 3 of the Romans passage, at the very beginning, the one who sends the Son and gives the Spirit is God. And in this passage, you can replace God in context with God the Father. So think about John 3.16. What was the Father's motivation for giving the Son? For God so loved the world. We do not keep the commandments as Christians, as Jesus' people, in order to earn God's love. We keep them because of God's love, right? There's a difference between kind of legalistic obedience and grace-motivated obedience. This is the difference between growing up in a house where you have all these rules and you feel like you're constantly trying to earn uh, respect or the love of your parents or other people in your household and you're kind of under the condemnation of how you fall short. Or being in a place or a community or a household where it's clearly communicated. There's still rules, but that you are never going to do anything to change the way that you're loved or accepted. Same rules even could be, but that's a super different way that you relate to them. You guys get the difference between those two? In the household of God, we relate to the law in response to the love of God. So there it is. Everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he's about to discuss flows from this passage. He's literally about to just illustrate it and unpack it for a long time. And in order to help us practically apply all this stuff throughout the rest of the series, I just want to leave you with a little anecdote that has helped me so much this week. And I've kind of shifted and changed it from a theological anecdote that's been around for a long time. But it's this. And I might come back to this uh, over the next few months. The commandments send us to the gospel for forgiveness, power, and love. And the gospel sends us back to the commandments. I'll say that again. The commandments send us to the gospel for forgiveness, power, and love, and the gospel sends 
sends us back to the commandments. When we confront the commandments of God, more often than not, we feel our failure. We're going to hear Jesus talk about money and sex and anger in the next coming weeks, and I know that I will be convicted by it. And they are meant, the Bible even teaches us, to drive us to the gospel. They're literally meant to lead us to Christ, to turn to Jesus like we discussed, where we receive the forgiveness and his work on the cross, where we ask for and receive the power of the Spirit, and where we soak in the love of the Father, which is unconditional. But then the gospel doesn't leave us there. I was joking with Marissa this week. It's like not at the end of every one of our service. We always confess our sins, but at the end, we don't say, now go and just absolutely botch it up again this week. Amen. (laughs) No, we say, go in peace in the power of the Spirit. We all pray together. Help us to serve you with singleness of heart, right? So it sends you back to do what Jesus actually says, newly forgiven and empowered and enriched by the love of God. And that cycle is always happening in the life of the Christian, and it's beautiful. Let me give you an example from my own life this week about how this actually played out for me. So as I was studying this stuff, I was deeply convicted about my parenting, um, that the environment I was creating for my boys felt more like law without the gospel than the gospel. I don't think I was setting up uh, a place where my kids were engaging with the commandments of God that was through the It was deeply spirit in response to the love of the Father. It was deeply convicting. And I came home and I told Marissa and I wept. And she and I both were driven to confess our sins and to bemoan our shortcomings as parents. But that is exactly what is supposed to happen when you engage with the word of God. There was a part of my life that the gospel shone a light on that was unconformed to Jesus that previously I was unaware of, and that was a beautiful thing for me to realize. We both were so thankful for it. And then it sent me sprinting to Jesus to receive his forgiveness and love, where I knew that I'm not perfect and Jesus loves me anyways. But the result of that conviction and forgiveness was not, man, it's a bummer, I'm a bad dad, and my kids are gonna live with this for the rest of their life. I'm glad I know it now, but there's nothing I can do about it. No, no, no. Then, after all that soaking in the gospel, Jesus sends me back to become a better dad in the power of the Spirit, in the forgiveness of Jesus, in response to the love of the Father. That experience for me was neither lawless nor legalistic. And those are the two ditches that Jesus avoids like the plague. Don't throw them out and don't think that if you, you know, don't live up to all the snuff and being legalistic, you're not perfect or loved or whatever. It was neither lawless nor legalistic. It was not miserable or oppressive, that experience of engaging with the gospel and the commandments of God. It was the best part of my week. It bore fruit. I actually genuinely think in working through this and spending time with the Lord and his commandments, I'm going to be a better dad, I hope. The commandments sent me to the gospel. The gospel sent me back to the commandments. And that's what we get to do every week as we come to the scriptures. May it bear fruit in us as we're especially walking through the Sermon on the Mount. But in your own life, you don't relate to the commandments of God just as some condemnation, judgmental thing. But they are beautiful and you want them. But in the gospel, you're relating to them through his work, by the power of the Spirit, and in response to the love of God.
In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.